All right, we're in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 tonight. Uh, We left off at verse 23 the last time we were together, and we're going to pick up now in verses 24 and 25, and those are the only two verses we're going to cover, but it doesn't mean that's all the only passages we're going to look at tonight. Actually, I looked, and there's at least 16 passages we're going to look at tonight. So uh, let me read verses 24 and 25. It says, and the Hebrew writer says, And let us consider how we may spur on, or spur one another on, toward love and good deeds, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. That's as far as we're going to get. Now, in order to do so, I want to recap, though, and go back and read to you verses 19 through 23 through this section because we kind of need to see how it's all tied together because as you see, at the start of verse 24 in the translation I have, he says, and. So we kind of see what it's connected with. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, we see here that the Hebrew writer had just challenged them to uh, approach the throne of grace with confidence. And you may not remember it because we've been in a study of Hebrews for a while, but this is not the first time that the Hebrew writer has challenged his readers to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Go back to Hebrews chapter 4 and look at verse 16. You'll see that actually that's the first time in in this book that he encourages them to do that. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16... He says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now we're going to take a look though at the two different reasons why he says to approach or or reasons why we can approach the throne of grace. In chapter 4 verses 14 through 16, look at what he says. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In this section here, we see that the first appeal was based on the fact that our high priest has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, and he knows our struggles and can sympathize. Remember back when we did that section, we can boldly go to God because God understands. In the section we're looking at tonight, or we finished with last time we were together, that leads into where we are tonight, uh, this one, the, we, are, we can go to the throne of God with boldness because our high priest has gone behind the veil into the Holy of Holies with his own blood on our behalf so that we're totally cleansed from sin. Now, in these two appeals to approach God boldly and go to his throne with confidence, he says something twice. Once in chapter 4 and once here in chapter 10. Can anybody tell me what it is? There's something he says in both places that is almost the same. Okay, approach the throne of grace, but that's the one we've already pointed out. I'm asking about one I haven't pointed out. But it was nice of you to try it. No. 
I'll give you a clue. Look at verse 14 and verse 23. 14 of chapter 4, 23 of chapter 10. Yes, hold on to your faith. You see it in verse 14? Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Look at verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And what we're going to see is we're going to talk about tonight in this section we're in, and especially in the verses that are coming up after that, which we won't have time to get to tonight. There's a real strong impetus here and importance on holding on to your faith, especially in the days that you live in. And we're going to get to that in a little bit. So what I want to do, though, is I want to just take a look at verse four, verse 24 to start with. Some of your translations might not say spur. My translation says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. What are some other translations? Provoke. Provoke. Sorry? Stir up. Now, provoke. When you hear the word provoke, what do you think? It's usually in the negative. And actually, this word is used in other places in the Bible. Actually, another place, and it's in the negative. But here it's in the positive. When you provoke, you're doing something intentionally, though. Spurring on is a good translation of that word. Stir up. We're to intentionally encourage good deeds in these days that we live in. Because of the boldness that we have, because of the fact that we've been made righteous through through Jesus Christ, we should challenge each other to be bold. Actually, not afraid to make mistakes. You know, see, years ago, and I might have shared this with you before, but I don't know, but years ago, um, before Henry Blackaby came around, um, the church didn't even consider... What does God have in mind? Unfortunately, the church has gone through many cycles over the history of the church. And there was a stretch where the church didn't even seek God. They were just serving God, trying to live according to the Bible, trying to do good, and just trying to just live for God. Those of you that are older generation, you've heard those terms, haven't you? Trying to be good stewards. We're trying to be faithful. We're trying to be committed. That generation is just focused on duty and commitment and all those kind of things. But the whole idea of seeking God for what He has in mind was kind of lost. Well, then Henry Blackaby comes on the scene 15, 20 years ago and writes the Bible study, Experiencing God. And in that, what does he say? Find out where God's at work and join Him. In other words, God's the one doing His work, and we're supposed to be joining with Him in what He does, and He wants to work through us. He doesn't want us to just do stuff for Him, which may not even be in line with what He has in mind. And so then the church began to start asking the question, well, what does God have in mind? Well, Satan now has over the years started to cause people to become paralyzed with fear. What if I get it wrong? What if I think it's the God's will, but it's not? You ever been there? I want to do what God has in mind, but what if it's not what God has in mind? And we tend to become paralyzed. This passage is actually saying, you have been made righteous through Jesus Christ, totally righteous through Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with whether or not you do good or do bad. You are declared righteous. You are a new creation. Take a chance. Start, do some good deeds boldly. What you think God may have in mind. And for those of you that haven't heard me teach on this in times past, I won't take the time to turn there. But in Luke 22, Jesus is turning to his disciples and he says, When I sent you out two by two, did you lack anything? And they said, no. He said, well now, um, if you don't have a sword, sell your coat and get one. 
Well, the disciples respond and they say, uh, well, we got two swords here. He said, that's enough. So it's obvious that he wasn't literally saying everybody needs to go sell their coat and get a sword. But what he was trying to illustrate to them was, I've been with you all along. And even when I wasn't physically with you, I was with you and I provided for you. And I sent you out two by two. I took care of you and I met your needs. I'm going to be gone for a little while. Of course, we know it's the three days in the tomb. And the Holy Spirit doesn't come until Pentecost. And he just said it's going to be rough for a couple of days. That's what he was really trying to illustrate. But he used the term, sell your coat, get a sword. In that same chapter, if you were to keep reading, they end up in the garden. And as they are in the garden, a crowd of soldiers from the Roman, Romans and Jews together come to arrest Jesus. And the disciples say what? Shall we strike with our swords? In other words, this must be what he was talking about. Peter thinking that he's to defend Jesus, Jesus said, get your sword, actually went to cut off Malchus's head. I'm telling you, he didn't go for the ear. He swung for the head. Malchus, being wise, did this. Whoa! In doing this, he doesn't get head, he gets ear. What does Jesus do? He says, guys, put your swords away. That's not what I'm talking about. And he puts the ear back on. In other words, fixes it, and continues on with what he's going to do. Peter thought he was doing the will of God. Jesus said, that's not quite it. Let's keep going. And I love the fact that a lot of us have never even really thought about this. That's why there's a value. By the way, my wife's back's hurting, so that's why she's got to jump up there. Uh, yeah, it's okay. Anybody that's listening on tape, pray for my wife's back. Because life is just so much better when her back's better. All right, so, But here's the thing. I want you to take time and meditate on the Word of God. Put yourself in a passage. Think about it. Let the Spirit speak to your heart. Have you ever thought about what Jesus was doing besides showing His glory to heal this man who has had his ear cut off? Interestingly enough, nobody stops arresting Him. I mean, they see Him heal this man's ear and they don't stop arresting Him. But here's another thing. Jesus also removed all the evidence of Peter's crime. You see, Peter had just cut the ear off of the high priest. He could have been snatched up as well, carried off to be arrested. But can you imagine that courtroom scene? Your Honor, my, uh, my, my, my servant's ear has been cut off. Which one? You ever thought about that? Oh yeah, well it was this one, but 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 uh, Jesus put it back on. <laughs> Peter thought he was doing the will of God, and Jesus said, "Not quite," and he kept going. Spur, challenge, encourage one another to live boldly for Jesus Christ, to do good deeds. Step out. I love it. Peter tries to apply. Uh, 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 sorry, Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel. He tries to go into Asia in Acts 16. The Holy Spirit says, It's not where I want you to go. Peter does not go home and say, Well, I'm not going to do anything until I get a word from God. He what? He tries to go into Mysia. The Spirit said, Not there. And he keeps going. And as they're going, the man of Macedonia comes in the dream and says, Preach the gospel to us. He was living boldly for Jesus Christ, but he was also listening to the Spirit saying yes or no. For years, the church had at least been trying to do things for Jesus. They weren't listening to whether or not the Spirit said yes or no. Then Henry Blackaby comes and says, 
Check with God. They begin to check with God and the church has become paralyzed by what if it's the wrong thing. Folks, put the two together. Live boldly for Jesus Christ. Encourage each other. If someone says, I think I might want to do this for the Lord, give it a shot. Head in that direction. Back in the story of David wanting to build Nathan, sorry, build the Lord a temple, Nathan the prophet comes to him and, and, and David says to Nathan, I am living in this paneled house and the, the ark of the Lord is living in, the, in a tent. I want to build God a temple. And before God says, you're not the one I chose, Nathan says a very interesting thing. And you can double check me and you go back and look at the story. Nathan says, whatever's in your heart to do, do it. God's with you. Now, of course, God comes and says to Nathan, actually... That he's not the one I chose. Go back and tell him that he's not the one I chose. And God's not mad with David that he wanted to do this. And he's not even mad with Nathan. See, at first, when I was a young preacher, I used to think that God was, that Nathan sinned by saying that. And I used to preach, man, it makes me feel good. A prophet actually was wrong, you know. But actually, he wasn't wrong. Because God began, as I studied that some more, took me back that that's not the first time a prophet ever said that to a king. Actually, Samuel said those exact same words to, to Saul when he had been anointed to be king of Israel. He says, you're going to be going down this road and, and you're going to run into these guys and they're going to be having some goats and loaves of bread and they're going to offer you one and you're going to take it and boom, boom, boom. And here are all the signs that the Spirit of God has come upon you. And then when it says this, when all these things have taken place, do whatever's in your heart to do because God is with you. Folks, you are a child of God through Jesus Christ. You have been made righteous and God is not measuring your performance as to whether or not you're good or bad anymore. He wants you to live boldly for Him. Spur one another on. Now, as you go, be listening to the Spirit who may say, not quite, or yes, but do it this way. That's why Philip was... An angel of the Lord told Philip, leave Samaria, head south down the desert road to go from Jerusalem to Gaza. As he was on his way to Gaza, the Spirit says, head over to the chariot, leads him to the Lord, baptizes him, and next thing you know, he's in hazardous. He never made it to Gaza, but he headed off in the direction God led him. Folks, as you've heard me teach before, don't get focused on the destination, but focus on the journey. But don't sit around waiting for God to give you a word. Live boldly. Provoke each other a little bit. Spur one another on. Stir each other up. Let me ask you this question. Well, let me just read it to you this way and then I'll ask you the question. This is an intentional arousing of others to live fully for Christ in full assurance of faith. Not to check out when times are hard. How many of you fully know what's going on in your life right now? You will understand what God's doing. No, none of us. None of us do. But we have a tendency sometimes when we don't understand what God's doing to be paralyzed with fear. To check out. Or to quit. Or to shrink back. We're not like those who would shrink back. Understand who you are and what Jesus has done and why you should be able to live boldly. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5 and then I'll ask you the question I said I was going to ask. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Look at verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. 
Now, when Paul's saying we encourage you brothers, who's he talking to? The body. He's not talking to the pastors because it says in verse 12, we ask, excuse me, we ask you brothers to respect those who are, work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. The brothers are the church members. These are the, these are the folks in the church. The Christians. Warn the idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. When somebody starts to check out, when somebody starts to shrink back, what do we have a tendency to do instead of spurring them on? Judge. Pull away from them. Hmm? Agree with them. Sympathize. Yeah. We have a tendency to gossip about them too, don't we? Only two. Only <laughs> two. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Someone's shooting at him instead of him shooting at me. That's good. (laughs) This is not an accidental encouragement, folks, though. This is an intentional one. I'm going to ask you, if he hasn't already, to start praying for God to show you somebody to call. Somebody to encourage. It doesn't mean they're going to listen. It doesn't mean that they're going to agree. You're to do this in love. You're going to do this patiently, but you need to encourage them. But here's what I want you to understand. Encourage them because of who they are in Jesus Christ. Not because if you were a good Christian, you'd be doing these things. Do you understand the difference? You should not go to a brother or sister who's shrunk back, who's pulling away, who's been discouraged because of things in this world. That's why the forgotten beatitude is Matthew chapter 11, verse 6, where Jesus says, Blessed is he who does not fall away on account of me. Remember, John the Baptist had just said, Are you the one or should we look for another? And Jesus says, Blessed is he who does not fall back or shrink back on account of me. In other words, blessed are those who don't fall away on account of how I run my world. But in those times, you don't go and judge those people. You don't come and say, you should know better. You should know. You need to lovingly, patiently encourage them because of the fact that Jesus has already gone behind the veil and they are righteous already. Don't be afraid. Be bold. And that reminds me of what Jonathan did with David, is it not? Remember, David was anointed to be the next king of Israel, but that didn't happen right away. And Saul's in charge, and Saul tries to kill David. And David has to run and hide, and he's sleeping in caves and rocks. And Jonathan leaves the wonderful palace to go find him. And he finds him, and the scripture says this, Jonathan encouraged him in the Lord, or strengthened him in the Lord. What could Jonathan do? Could Jonathan say, I'll talk to my dad so that he doesn't try to kill you anymore? He couldn't do that. He'd already tried that. What happened? Dad tried to kill him. All Jonathan could do was to show up when David was in the dumps, if you will, and say, God has made a promise and He will keep it. You keep your eyes on God and you keep going. And that's what the Scripture says He did. You will be the next king. Folks, if God's laid someone on your heart, or if He puts somebody in your path, spur one another on toward love, and good deeds, but do it reminding them of who God is. Not on how they should act, but on who God is, and what He said, and what His promise is. Now, I want to take a little second and deal with those who may be listening either in this room or on this recording 
who would say, well, I'm going to sit back and wait until a Christian comes and encourages me. We'll see if they care. We'll see if they really are what they say they are. Let me say to you who may have that response, be very, very careful. Because in your response to sit back and judge whether or not man does what God's Word says man should do, you're actually making a greater statement of who you think God is. Because you're waiting for your need to be met by man and not God. Listen to this. In Psalm 23 verse 1, what does the Scripture say? The Lord is my shepherd. Go there real quick. I want you to look at the whole passage and look at it from this standpoint. I love this. And as you're turning there, let me just say this. As much as God desires to use us in each other's lives, if man fails, God is enough. I'm going to say that again. As much as God desires to use each other in man's, in man's lives, if man fails, God is still enough. Yes. That's it. That's right. Because in, in order to do that, you're going to have to know who God is and then tell them who God is and not commiserate with them focusing on man's way of looking at things. Folks, listen to Psalm 23. Listen closely. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides my path in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Isn't that what we're talking about today, Jim? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I love how it changes. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you see what happened in the middle of David's psalm? As he was talking about who God is and what God does. He's my shepherd. I won't need. I won't want. He's the one that makes me lie down. He's the one that restores my soul. All of a sudden, his focus was no longer on who God is but on God Himself. And all of a sudden, His heart turned into, you're going to do it. And He was better. Folks, you're going to find that when you really learn to rely on the Lord Jesus Christ. He will do it. It'll change from a theology of God is who God is this way. He won't take care, he'll take care of you, or God will take care of you in this way, or He'll anoint your head with oil. All of a sudden, it turns into, He does it. And in the middle of David's psalm, I had never seen that until recently. It turns from a theological discussion about who God is to an outburst of praise. And David's cool by the end of the, the, end of the psalm. I'm going to be with you forever. I'm good. I'm good. So if you're sitting back there today thinking, I'm going to wait for man to come encourage me, you're really showing your view of God, not man. Let me show you a couple other pages real quick. Go to Hebrews 13. 
Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. And a lot of us are going to need to have this verse passage memorized so God can bring it to our heart in the days to come. It says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, I love that, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I'm not looking for my help from man. Now, does God use man? Yes. But when it comes, I know who it's really coming from. And so don't just sit back saying, I'll wait and see who encourages me. There's one last one, and I'm just going to read it to you real quick. Psalm 27, verse 10. There's a lot of them, but this is the third one I want to show you real quick. Psalm 27, verse 10 says this. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. So that's the case anybody sitting there saying, well, I know what you're talking about, but my, my family deserted me. Yeah, the Bible talks about that too. If man lets you down, God is still enough. Yet, what are we to do? According to verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 10, let's consider, let's think about it. Let's not just see, look for it accidentally. Let's consider how we may spur, provoke, stir up one another. To love and good deeds. Why? Because that's the Christian thing? No. Because God, the Lord Jesus Christ, has gone behind the veil and applied His blood on our behalf. We are righteous. We are His children. We can live boldly. Don't be afraid of making a mistake. Live for the Lord Jesus Christ boldly, but be listening as you do. And if you make a mistake, guess what? God can clean up after you and keep going. That's only one verse. Let's get to the next verse. This is the one I've been waiting to get to. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, I have to be honest with you. This is a passage of Scripture that has been quoted many times and in my years of growing up in church has been preached by the preacher about why we should be in church on Sunday. And the more that I've studied the Scriptures, the more I've come to realize that's not even close to what this passage is talking about. Because actually, to be really an individual in biblical fellowship with other believers, we need to be meeting more than just on Sunday. More than just, well, 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 of course, Jim, that means Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. No. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayer, and they met daily in each other's homes and in the temple courts. They ate together. Folks, I'm going to encourage you, don't forsake getting together with other Christians. That's all it's talking about. This isn't talking about church attendance. Now, that's valuable, but this isn't what it's talking about. It's talking about the importance of getting together. But what I want to do today is not read this just yet in our context Because most of us have read this in our context. I've been guilty of it, but it's not a guilt because it's not a bad thing. You should apply this to your context. It does speak to our context that we should not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing and encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. But as I was praying over this and studying on it, God had me go back and look at who was the Hebrew writer writing to? What did this mean to them? What was their context? And in doing so, folks, something just jumped out that I can't wait to show you. Look at what it says. And it says, And all the more as you see the day 
approaching. What is the day? The return of Jesus Christ. You may or may not know this, but the early church, the first generation of Christians, truly believed that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. We're talking Paul, Peter. All these Christians truly believed that Jesus was going to return in their lifetime. Let me show you some evidences of this. Go to Acts chapter 1. Starting in verse 6. This is right after Jesus' death and His resurrection. He's appeared for 40 days now. This is about when He's right, right to ascend to the Father. The Holy Spirit has not come at Pentecost yet. That's about to happen. So, so when they met together, they asked Him, Lord, are You at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now let me keep helping you understand why they asked that question. They knew the prophecies. The prophecies in Zechariah showed that the Messiah was going to stand on the Mount of Olives. It was going to split in two. A river was going to run from it all the way to the temple. You, you remember our study in Revelation. The prophecy said very clearly that the Messiah was going to stand on the Mount of Olives when that happened. Where are they standing right now? On the Mount of Olives. Alright, so their thinking is, okay, you've died, you've rose from the dead, you've been around for 40 days. Hey guys, look where he's standing. And they turned to Jesus and said, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel right now? Is the, they didn't know there was such a thing yet because Revelation hadn't been written yet. But is the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign about to begin? They, weren't, they were just thinking the kingdom was going to start, which is the millennial kingdom. Jesus says this, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by His own authority, but you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them, hid him from their sight. Now they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, if you are there at that time, and you hear the angels say, the same way that Jesus went up is how he's going to come back. The same Jesus that you have seen go is going to come back. What are you thinking? You're going to see it, him come back. Go with me real quick to Matthew. Chapter 24. Now the angel did not say that they would see him come back in that manner. On the, on the, but he kind of did. They'll see it from the other side. Look at Matthew 24 verse 34. I tell you the truth, Jesus has been talking about all the signs about the end and His return. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now again, if you're alive at the time and you hear Jesus say, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened, what are you going to think? It's going to happen in your lifetime. Plus the teaching of Paul 
was that we were to be looking for His return, anticipating His return. If you were to go back and do a study of, of your own and to look at Paul's teachings, everything is all interlaced with an expectation of the return of Christ and His appearing, the glorious hope. John writes about that as well. So, the early Christians that the Hebrew writer is writing to, in this time, this is just prior to AD 70, the temple's still there. There's a serious war going on, though, and things are getting pretty bleak. And early generation, first generation Christians are now dying. And Jesus hasn't come back. What do you think some of the reaction of these early Christians were? to the fact that they had been told He was coming. What? We missed it. We're left behind. We missed it. Actually, in 2 Thessalonians, we see that Paul had to deal with some letter supposedly written by Paul that the return had already happened. And Paul says, don't listen to that. We can see... Well, actually... We'll get back to that, this generation passage, but if you look at it, it points to possibly the generation that sees Israel rebud. If you look in the context, it's possibly, we don't know this, possibly tied into what he just said about learn the lesson from the fig tree. When you see it, until these things. So there's a, there are many, and I lean in that direction, that think that the generation that has seen Israel become a nation again won't pass away until all these things have been fulfilled, which means I believe we're in the terminal generation. Now don't get your calculators out to try to determine how long a generation is. We'll talk about that in the time we have left tonight. So we'll, we'll come back to that, alright? But for right now, what I want you to realize is, is the early Christians were now becoming a little discouraged. Things were getting hard. They're being um, persecuted for their faith. Jesus isn't coming back and these Christians are dying and they've not seen His return. And We'll go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You'll see that Paul had to deal with that too. In verses 13 through 18, 1 Thessalonians 4, one of the passages we love, and, I, and I, I've got it memorized in, 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 in my heart because it's one of my favorite passages. But look, but look at what I, why it's written. It says, brothers, verse 13 of chapter 4, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. See, the early Christians were saying, if He was supposed to be coming back in our lifetime, and, and it might still happen in my lifetime, but my father just died, and he's missing the return of Christ. Paul says, relax. The ones who have gone to sleep in the Lord, who have already gone to be with Him, Jesus is going to bring them with Him when He comes. Then it says, according to the Lord's own word, verse 15, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Again, was that written like someone hearing it might be alive when He returns? We like to read it in our context. It was written to them. They were expecting Him to come back while they were still alive. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Paul says those who are dying already aren't going to miss the return of Jesus because He's going to bring them with Him. But you have to keep in mind the early people that were reading, early Christians who were hearing this letter, 
were thinking that they were going to miss the return of Christ or that it had already happened. Or some were getting discouraged and saying, you know what? Maybe it ain't going to happen. Maybe this is just a bunch of hooey that I've been taught. Because look what's going on. I'm not so sure this Christian thing is really what all you guys say it is. Haven't we noticed throughout this entire book of Hebrews, every now and then a stern warning not to fall away? To hold unswervingly to the faith you profess because He who promised is faithful? So what I want to deal with is this question. Were the early Christians wrong in thinking that Jesus would return in their lifetime? The answer is no. And actually, the Bible has clearly stated that every generation should expect Jesus to return in their lifetime. Which is one of the further evidences of the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. The whole attitude of the imminency of the return of Jesus Christ. And the fact that it could happen at any time. If it were to happen at any other time, we could say, don't look for it until these things happen. But the fact that they were expecting it to happen in their day showed that it could happen at any moment. And I want to show you real quickly that Jesus Himself taught that everyone should be expecting His return and looking for His return. Go to Matthew 24 again, and I'm going to deal with a couple of passages real quick. Matthew 24. Now, as we're doing this, as you're turning there, let me just say quickly as a real overview of church history. Unfortunately, because of the fact that Jesus' return has not happened yet, and it has been 2,000 years since He ascended, and He's not come back yet, um, a lot of things have started to happen in Christendom over the years. And if you look at church history, you'll see it. And what has started to happen is there was a, a long section of the church history where the church stopped expecting the return of Jesus Christ. They actually started to come up with a different theology as to the return of Christ. And that's where you get amillennialism or postmillennialism. And, and the fact that there are those that think that Jesus really doesn't literally come back. That the, the reign of Christ or the kingdom of God is the God's ruling in this world through the church in the last days. And many started to say there is no return of Jesus actually to the earth. Even though the Bible is very clear that He will. But we're in a privileged time. I'm not going to bash Christians during those time periods because I might have fallen into that trap myself. Because whenever you read Israel, if you've been a Christian for 1,000, 1,500 years, it was 1,800 years that there was no Israel. If you read Israel, your brain might say, well, it can't mean Israel. There's no such thing as Israel. But we're living in a time in which we're after 1948. The fig tree has rebutted. We've seen... Ezekiel 37 fulfilled partially in our day. And the dry bones coming back to life. And the scripture says, these bones are the nation of Israel. Coming back from the dead, but they don't have the breath of God in them yet. We're living in a privileged time. So don't bash Christians in past time who have lost sight of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. But look at the fact that Jesus Himself said in Matthew 24, verses 42-44, that we're to be always watching. He says, therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. 
But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Now, stick with me. You're gonna, you're, you might be a little confused here by some of the things Jesus is saying. Just stick with me, and I'm going to explain them in a second. Go to Luke chapter 12. Look at verses 35 through 40. It says, Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants who find, whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now, this seems to be a little confusing. You're saying, wait a minute, Jim, we're to be expecting the return of Jesus Christ. We're to be looking for the return of Jesus Christ. Yet Jesus is saying He's going to come when we don't expect Him. Keep in mind, the audience He's speaking to is a big audience, a mixed audience. Are there some who are listening to Jesus' words who are going to be caught by surprise at the return of Jesus Christ? Yes. Now let me also clarify for you. Jesus is going to come back in your lifetime. I'm going to say this again. Listen closely to what I just said. I did not say the rapture was going to happen in your lifetime. I said Jesus is going to come back in your lifetime. When you die, you will meet your maker. And if you look back in Matthew 24, Jesus tells the parable about his return, about the master who goes away, leaves his servant in charge. The servant says, my master's going to be gone for a long time. He gets drunk, treats the other servants badly, and the master come back, comes back quicker than he thought and tosses him outside with those weeping, gnashing of teeth. Then he immediately tells the parable of the ten virgins and how they were looking for his return, but he took longer than they thought. And some didn't have enough oil. And he took longer than they thought. And then he tells the parable of the, of the talents. And what's most important is what we do in the meantime. Listen to what Jesus was saying. I'm going to come back quicker than some people think. Many of you know someone who died a lot earlier than you thought they were going to die and probably earlier than they thought they were going to die. He also said, I'm going to, it's going to take longer for me to come back for some of you than, you than you think too. How many people have sat in a nursing home saying, when's he going to come get me? I've outlived my children and some of my grandchildren. When is he going to come get me? Jesus said, it's going to seem quick to some. It's going to seem long to others. The most important thing is what you do in, your, in the meantime. But let me encourage you with something though. As much as Jesus said that his return will be like a thief, I believe the Bible teaches that that's not true for Christians who are looking. And I'm going to show you what I'm talking about. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I believe that for Christians who are looking for His return, whether it's to come get them individually or to come in the rapture, 
I believe the Bible teaches that Christians who are looking will know that it's about to happen. And I'll show you scripturally what I'm talking about. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1-11. through Paul says, Now brothers, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Remember, Jesus said that. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them, see that, suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us not be like the others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, in other words, alive at the rapture, or if we die and go be with Him, we may live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. What did Peter say at the end of his life in 2, Peter chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 4? He said, I have fought the fight. I've finished the race. I know that I'm about to die. And I know that a crown of righteousness is laid up for me, but not only for me, but for all who are longing for His appearing. Peter himself said, I know that I'm about to put off this tent. And so before I do, I want to remind you of some things. Earlier in Philippians chapter 1, Paul wasn't sure if he was going to die or not. And he was wrestling with that because he wanted to go be with the Lord. And he wasn't sure. And then he says, "Uh, I think I'm I'm supposed to stay in the body. And he did. But at the end of his life, he knew it was time. Think about the fact that Elijah knew when it was time. Did he not? Even the prophets of God always say to Elisha, your master's going to go home today. And Elisha says, I know, don't talk about it. And then the next group of prophets would say, your master's going home today. And he'd say, I know, don't talk about it. You know? How about Simeon and Anna? They were looking for the Messiah. And they had been told that they would not die, Simeon especially, would would not die until they had seen the Lord's Christ. And when Simeon led the Spirit into the temple that day, meets Mary and Joseph with the baby Jesus, he knows this is the one. He comes, he prophesies over him, and then he says, Lord, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. I'm ready to go. Listen to me. Yes, the return of Christ is going to catch many like a thief. And unfortunately, even Christians. But this day should not overtake you like a thief. And whether He comes and gets you individually, in your personal rapture, if you will, or corporately, He's not appointed us to suffer wrath. And before that day of wrath comes, which is right before His return, He's going to gather His church. And we need to encourage each other. And then we need to be watching and ready and looking. And like we talked about just a few minutes ago, Susan, I believe, and again, we can't prove this, but I believe that when Jesus said, this generation shall not pass away until all these things have happened, it was tied to what He had just said in the previous verse about learn the lesson from the fig tree. When you see its leaves come out, 
you'll know that summer is near, even at the door. And all the way through the Scriptures, you see Israel and the fig tree as a symbolic thing. And remember when Jesus walked toward Jerusalem that day in His last week, and the fig tree had sprouted, but there was no fruit? What did He do? He cursed it, and it withered. Symbolic of what was just about to happen to the nation of Israel. But God had promised all along that in the very last days, you can go back into Deuteronomy when Moses is speaking. God's making His promises. If you do this, I'll do this. If you don't do this, I won't do this. Boom, boom, boom. He says, but in the last days, I will gather you all back into the land. And that has happened in our lifetime. If Jesus is referring to the the, the generation that sees the fig tree rebud... We're in the last generation. Now, here's where we get ourselves into problem. We want to do the math and figure out how long is a generation. A man wrote a book in 1988 called 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988 because he thought a generation was 40 years. Because in Psalm 95, God says, I was angry with that generation for 40 years. And they wandered in the wilderness. So he was sure a generation was 40 years. Yet, in the genealogies in Matthew chapter 1, you see that there were 14 generations from Adam to so-and-so and 14 from David to so-and-so. And if you do the math of the history and how long it was, those generations add up to like 50-something years apiece. But wasn't, was it, yeah, exactly, wasn't Moses told, Abraham told, that his descendants would be in slavery for four generations? It was actually 400 or 430 years, actually, is how long they were in slavery. So now we know a generation could be a hundred years, the Bible says in the book of Psalms. That man's days are what? Seventy or eighty if he has the strength. What does the word mean in Greek? Well, people wrestle with that word in the Greek and they, they, they say it could mean one or two things. It could mean the way we mean generation. Some people think it just means mankind won't pass away until all these things have happened. Don't know. I lean toward it means what it meant all throughout the rest of the Bible, generation meaning generation. If you live to be 105, your generation is still around. So don't try to do the math and figure out on what day the Lord has come. It is not for you to know the dates. Did you hear that? But what are you to be doing? Watching. And let me tell it to you this way, and we'll come back and do more of this next time we come together. When Philip met Jesus, he believed Jesus was the Messiah. And he went and told Nathanael, and I love how Philip says this. It's in John chapter 1. Philip says it this way. We found the one Moses wrote about. In other words, this guy matches the prophecy. Nathanael's response is, you're right. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip's response is, come and see. Come and see. Check it out for yourself. What I want to do next time we come together, and it's going to be in two weeks, is I want to spend just one session. We're going to take a break from Hebrews, because I want to continue where we left off here. When we come back in two weeks, if we're still here, and I mean that seriously, when we come back in two weeks, I want to spend one session just dealing with, look at what's going on in this world, Look at the prophecies. Could this be what the Scripture wrote about? Some of you might say, yeah, I don't know, sure. I want to say to you, as Philip said to Nathaniel, come and see. Check it out for yourself. We are provoking one another to love and good works. And we'll fall apart if people are going to see that. Oh, yeah. And they're going to ask what's up with that. And the Scripture says, 
You got it. And then they will want to come and see. Yep. And we'll deal with this when we come back together, and I'll show this to you scripturally, but I'll just say this now as we close. For those of you that say, yeah, yeah, sure we're in the last days. Actually, the Bible says the last days began when Jesus came to the earth in the flesh. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years according to the Scriptures. I think and believe according to Scripture that we're in the last of the last days. And I want to show you what's going on in the world and how it lines up with Scripture. Again, please do not hear me as Harold Camping. For those of you who don't know, Harold Camping is the one with all these billboards saying that the return of Christ is on May 21st, 2011. Oh yeah, he's got 150 radio and TV stations and it's all over the world that that Harold Camping is saying that Jesus is coming back May 21st. I'm not talking about that kind of a thing. Trust me, that's good, but I I don't want to wait that long. But what I'm saying is this. I want to just show you things that will make you say, wow, we may be right on the edge. Now, is there a chance Jesus doesn't come back in our lifetime in the rapture? Sure. Would we be wrong to think that He will? No. The Bible says we're to be expecting it in our lifetime. If Paul expected it in his, I'm going to expect it in mine. Let me pray for us. Father, thank You again for this time. Man, Lord, we had so much fun just looking at two verses. And to be honest, we didn't even really deal fully with these verses. But You've shown us what You want us to see for tonight. Father, bring us back uh, in two weeks to take a look at these things, these Things that appear to line up with your prophecy. Things that are happening right now in the world. And Father, I just pray that we would come with an attitude not to figure it out or to draw the, figure the charts to the point that we know what day it's going to happen. But Lord, to be excited and one of the many who are looking for your return. And Lord, I truly believe that you'll give us glimpses if we're looking and living in an abiding daily relationship with you. You'll give us that hint that you're either coming for us individually or for us as a group. And Lord, I thank You for the fact that as I travel around this country and talk to other Christians who are looking for Your return, many, many, many are saying, Jim, it has to be close because of what I sense in my spirit. Father, thank You for this group that has that same attitude. Show us what You want us to see along that line when we get back together. And if You show it to us in heaven in two weeks, that's good with us too. In Your name we pray. Amen.